We are starting a new study uh, this week. I believe that this will take us to the end of the year, probably, as we go through the book of Esther. Because, uh, uh, you know, we don't do, we don't do them every, every week uh, on Sunday nights. So I believe that this is going to be the, the, the study that brings us to the end of the year. I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I shouldn't say it like that. That makes it sound derogatory of Esther. Uh, what do I mean by that is I don't have many books left of books I have not done at, at, at either an assembly or a small Bible study or a home study. Uh, this is one of the last. Esther is one of the last books that I have not done in detail. Uh, Ezekiel, Song of Solomon, and Leviticus. Those are the other three. So we're, we're coming to the end of uh, sort of the, I'm going to have to start repeating stuff. That's going to have to happen. So uh, I want you to imagine for a minute you're a Jew living in the 400s or 300s BC, right? The, the dates go down. Uh, either you're in captivity in the late 400s or you've recently returned from captivity. You're back in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe it's the 300s. It's a time of prophetic silence, right? There, there hasn't been a prophet in a while and you're sort of living your life in Israel. And every year, 14th and 15th days of the 12th month, you have a family. Your family has a holiday, the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Lots. We'll talk about why it's called the Feast of Lots uh, towards a later date. Uh, you give gifts to each other. It sounds a lot like Christmas, really. Uh, you give gifts to each other. You give gifts of food. You give gifts to the poor, uh, right? You're, you're, you're thinking about your neighbors around you who are, who are less fortunate. You're giving gifts. You're, you're celebrating. You have feasts on the 13th, uh, 14th and 15th. You have feasts. Um, maybe with your friends and your family and pe maybe it's people in your neighborhood. Whoever it is, you, you gather together, you have a feast with your family to commemorate the goodness of God and his gifts to you and your people. And you do this every year, 14th and 15th of the 12th month. And if you're a kid, inevitably, if you have children, one day your child asks, why? Why do we do this, right? Why are we doing this every, every year? We have this holiday. What does it all mean? And the book of Esther is the answer to that question. Why do we have this feast every year? The book of Esther has a very narrow focus compared to a lot of other books of the Old Testament. Well, really books of the Bible in general, in that it has a very specific purpose to tell the story of this holiday, this particular holiday, why it matters. In the last two chapters of the book of Esther, which we sort of, I don't know, gloss over maybe as we've studied book of, uh, Esther in the past. Uh, maybe you've, you've done this, you've sort of glossed over because it, it stops being about really the story and it starts being about this holiday. But the book is about the holiday. The book is the, the, the story of why they had this holiday every year, this particular holiday. Now, there's other things in the book that are important, obviously. We're going to go through and talk about some general lessons for God's people in any era, not just the Israelites, but of God's people of any era. But the Feast of Purim is the driving force of the book. This event that inaugurated this particular feast. Unlike a lot of the feasts in, in Israelite culture, which God ordained in the law, right? We, had a, we have a ton of feasts, the Passover, Feast of Booths, Feast of Weeks. We have a lot of these holidays that in Leviticus and Numbers, they, they were initially set up by God. This was one that came later, way later, towards the end of the Old Testament. The Israelites incorporated this into their, their culture and their society. And this is the story of why, where the feast came from, what it celebrates, why it should be remembered. And you can see the significance in the emphasis on feasts in the book. 
the book can be structured around feasts in, in Esther. So we have Xerxes' banquet. We're, we're using Xerxes' name. We're going to use Xerxes and Ahasuerus kind of interchangeably. Uh, Ahasuerus is the Greek name for the Persian king Xerxes. And so you'll see uh, both names sort of interchangeably as we go through this. Uh, Xerxes has a banquet for the nobility. Then he has a banquet for all the men. Uh, Vashti has a banquet. Vashti is the first queen, doomed, as we know in the book. Uh, Vashti has a banquet, and then Esther has an enthronement banquet. Uh, Xerxes and Haman, they have a banquet. Then Esther has two, right? She has two different feasts that she has with Haman and, and uh, the king. Uh, the Jews have a, a feast in celebration of Mordecai, and that's in chapter 8. And then we have the two feasts of Purim on the 14th and 15th at the end of the book. And you can sort of pair these off. I think that's... Yeah, those are seeable. Uh, you can pair these feasts off in the, in the literary structure of the book where we have Xerxes has two banquets for the nobility and then the men contrasted with the end of the book, two feasts of Purim. We have Vashti, she has a feast, and then Esther has a feast, the pairing of the feasts of the women. We have Haman and Xerxes, they have a banquet which is, of course, contrasted with the Jews' feast and celebration when Haman is sort of overthrown, right? The, the, the reversal that happens there. And then, of course, in the middle of this, the sort of climax of the book is Esther's first and second banquet with the king and with the ultimate enemy of the, the story, Haman. And the way that this is framed, again, as a commemoration a story of a feast, of a holiday. You can see the significance as you go through the book here. Now, Esther is one of the more unusual books in the Bible. We're going to talk about some of this introductory material uh, before we dig into the, the, the main themes that I want to go through in this study. Uh, one of the more unusual books in the Old Testament, really in the Bible, I would say right up there with uh, Song of Solomon as sort of the two main uh, contested books of the Old Testament. People don't like them. Uh, first, it takes place in exile, but after the return. We'll read a couple of these verses. Esther 1, 1 through 3. In the days of Ahasuerus, that's uh, again the Greek name for Xerxes 1. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when the king sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. That places the, the timing of the book, right? He reigned from 46 to 45. We just know that. Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. As we see the first return from captivity, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. He's, of course, several kings before Ahasuerus. The word of the Lord by the uh, mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put in writing. And the proclamation is what? The Jews get to go home. Hooray for the Jews. That's the whole point of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going back. They're rebuilding the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the, the society. And Cyrus's rule was 538. Which means this is 50 or 60 years before Esther. The Jews have gotten to go home. Not all of them, but a lot of them have gotten to go home. And so the book is unusual because it takes place in exile, but after they've returned, a lot of them. And so the, the main participants in this story are Jews who remain behind for some reason or other. And we, and we can speculate as to why that may be. Of course, we know not all the Jews were released all at once. But again, this is decades after Cyrus's decree. Jerusalem is starting to be built back up. The stories of Ezra and Nehemiah have taken place. There, there's this reignition of service to God in Jerusalem and in Israel. But these people stayed behind. These are the Jews that, for whatever reason, did not go back, which makes it unusual. And I think we'll inform this idea 
that these are Jews that have stayed behind when others have returned, will inform some of the more unusual things about the book, like this. Second, the primary characters show very little regard for the law of Moses. It's just not in the book. Uh, Esther eats whatever's set before without complaint. Contrast with Daniel. Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, right? They're in exile. They're given this food to eat. And they're like, no, we can't do that. Esther doesn't seem to have any problem eating whatever she's given in Esther 2. Uh, her marriage to a foreigner isn't mentioned as undesirable. Israelites were supposed to stay pure, right? They're supposed to stay separate. And yet Esther kind of seduces the king. I mean, not kind of, she just does seduce the king. And, and nobody says anything bad about that. Uh, Mordecai hides her heritage. There's no uh, effort to sort of be uh, proud about their Israelite heritage, their service to God. In other instances, of course, in the exile, we see that they were supposed to remain faithful. They were supposed to remain uh, dedicated to God. Esther and Mordecai, don't seem to be doing that. They're hiding their Jewish heritage at the open of the book. Now, of course, it comes out later on, their Jewish heritage, but at the beginning, neither of them seem to have any desire to be overtly Jewish. There's a lot of wanton destruction and killing in chapter 9. Esther 9.5, the Jews struck their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, as they and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. It doesn't seem to be a, a, a destruction as in a battle, but more wanton slaughter because they've gotten their way. And really this leads us to, as we think about these oddities, taking place in the exile, but after the return, doesn't seem to be many instances where they care about what God's law said in the Old Testament. Most significantly, there is no mention of God in the book. Not just his specific name, Yahweh, but not even the more generic term Elohim, which is the generic term for God, doesn't appear in the book of Esther. If the book didn't mention the Jews, it'd be very easy to just take this as some sort of rebellion myth of the Persian rule. The only reason we think it's about, we would think it's about God at all is because it's about Jews. And we understand the history of God with the Israelites and of course the captivities and the exile and all those things. And so because of this, there's an unusual treatment of Esther in the Septuagint. LXX is the abbreviation, the, the not abbreviation, the, the symbol for the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, seemingly unique to the Greek translation of Esther. There are a number of editions, six specifically, six editions that we cannot find any Hebrew evidence for. Nobody thinks they were in the original book. They were added when it was translated to the Greek presumably to sanitize or explain some of these more controversial aspects. And you'll see this as you go through, if you have a Bible uh, that has the Apocrypha, I don't know if anybody does, but if you have a Bible that has the Apocrypha, they include these six editions to Esther, either as an appendix or they've woven them into the text of Esther itself uh, as a sort of a means of explaining and, and sort of making this make more sense. But there's no way those were in the original text. The story as it is, as we have in most of our Bibles, in the Hebrew, didn't mention God. No seemingly care for any of God's laws. Just doesn't seem to be there. The book, again, if the book did not mention the Jews explicitly, we might easily overlook it as just some pagan myth. And that's sort of the, the structure that it follows. A pagan myth of rebellion. And we would have seen many of these in the stories of captured peoples, both by the Persians and by the Greeks and by the Romans. And they would have these myths. We have them today. It would be something like Star Wars, right? A story of rebellion. Well, that's what Esther is. It's a story of rebellion. 
A people who are in this land that doesn't belong to them. They've been conquered. They live there and they're hiding and they're trying to stay, they're trying to survive and they have enemies all around them. And, and what is going to happen to them and how are they going to overcome their enemies and how are they going to survive? This would have been a common story. We only associate it with God because the Jews claimed it as theirs because it mentions the Jews, right? Esther and Mordecai, they're Jews. Now, because, despite all these unusual things, and we're, we're, I want to mention them because we're doing, like I said, a deeper dive of Esther. It's clear in rabbinic traditions, that is the traditions of the Israelites, that they accepted the book as authoritative very early on. As soon as they got it, they accepted it as authoritative. There was never a question in the rabbinic tradition. And I say rabbinic tradition because no other Old Testament scripture references it. It can't because of where it falls in the timeline. Very likely among the last books written in the Old Testament. If not the last book written in the Old Testament. And yet the Jews accepted it immediately. This is from God. This is part of our culture. This is from God. This is authoritative. And of course we see that in their celebration of Purim. The Feast of Purim. Which they immediately adopted all throughout their culture. That we're going to celebrate this holiday. This awesome event that God did in the midst of, of exile. In the midst of, Babel, of, the midst of Persian. The, the Persian Empire at this point. Uh, in Susa. In the city of Susa. This great thing that God did. We all accept it. It was awesome. God did it. Let's celebrate this feast. And they do. But even as late as the Reformation. People have been uncomfortable with the book's position in the Bible, that is, in the, that the book is in the Bible at all. Most famously, Luther hated it. Martin Luther hated Esther, uh, as he did the book of James. Thought it shouldn't be in the canon, just get rid of it. And it has cropped up over the centuries. There's been debates over and over about whether Esther should be in the canon or not. But when you place the story of Esther in the context of the Old Testament narrative... God's role is easily inferred. It makes sense. Is you put it in the category of genre, uh, the category of, of the Old Testament books like Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, books that are written from exile in this time of exile, even put it with Ezra and Nehemiah as, as stories of return from exile. This book fits in that tradition of what do God's people do when they're captured, when they're lost when they're on the losing side, as opposed to, for much of their history, they had their own kingdom. How do God's people endure? How do they remain faithful? And ultimately, how does God save them? How does God save Israel in these difficult circumstances? And when we put the book of Esther in that place in the canon as a story, just like Daniel or, or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, God's presence, even though he's not explicitly mentioned, you can see on par with David's uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. On par with Dave, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. That God is working to protect his people in their dangerous situations. Now, two passages as we transition into thinking about the themes of the book. Two passages really capture the essence of the book, both thematically and stylistically. We'll begin with Esther 4, 12 through 14, which are perhaps the most famous known verses in the book. They told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mo uh, this is, of course, that, that Haman's going to, there's this proclamation, the Jews are going to be killed. Haman wants to kill the Jews. Uh, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think yourself in the king's palace that you will escape any more than the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. We can see the implication there, right? What does Mordecai think? 
Now, he doesn't explicitly mention God, and you can see maybe you could make the argument he's not thinking about God, but that would be foolhardy in the utmost. He's saying what? Deliverance will rise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time at this, as this. He says it in the form of a question, but he's not asking a question. You have come to the kingdom for this moment, for this time. And in the Feast of Purim, that's what they're celebrating, that God put Esther here to save the people when they needed it. And again, you could call it coincidence, as some have done, but that would be foolhardy in the utmost, again, in the place of Scripture, in the context of Scripture, that this is just another instance, like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, like all of the times God protected his people, God has orchestrated events to protect his people. And this is a good question for each of us to ponder, right? Who knows? Now, we're not thinking about kingdom. Who knows whether you have not come into this situation? Whatever you want to put in your situation there. Who knows whether you have not come into this family, into this church, into this town, into this job? Who knows whether you've come into that place for such a time as this? What are the situations in life that I am uniquely able to influence? We all need to ask that. What in my life, the positions that I'm in, job, family, church, work, whatever you want to put in there, city, culture, what situations am I in that I can affect change and no one else can? That's where Esther was, right? What are the unique ways that I can help others and be a force for God's goodness in the world? What can I do? Again, we all have to ask that. This is a common theme of scripture, right? That God put people where they needed to be to affect some positive change. And we can go through a whole host of things in either the New Testament or the Old Testament where people ended up where they needed to be and then it worked out well. And what we'd use, the word that we'd use for this is providence, which is a word that we'll come back to over and over. That's going to be the title of our study, the providence of God, as we see in the book of Esther. Of course, Ultimately, we're thinking about what good can I do? And I, I'm encouraged, not encouraged, I'm challenged by Mordecai's question. Don't think that you're going to escape wherever you are. God's going to have goodness happen. May not be through you. You may perish. But God's will is going to be done. And I'm reminded of Matthew 25 when Jesus warns us of this. 25, 38 through 40, when he's talking about the good that people either did or did not do, and that was going to be the, the thing that separated them in judgment, right? And they ask, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God puts us in situations where we can affect change and be his hands and feet, do the things that he wants us to do. And that's going to be the thing that separates us in judgment. The people that are sent into destruction, they didn't do these things. They did not welcome the stranger, or clothe the naked, or visit the sick, or those in prison. So we all have to ask, what is in my life that God has put there for me to do? Why am I where I am? The second passage that illuminates the book of Esther this one more stylistically as a book. Esther 9, 1. 
In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, and the king's command and edict went to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of Jew, the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. If the book has a refrain, a common theme, it's this. Then the reverse occurred. That is the, the theme of the entire book. We have the story of Vashti at the beginning. We have the story of Mordecai and Haman, where Haman thinks he's gonna do, something's going to happen, and then the reverse happens. And Mordecai, he's the one who's honored instead. We have Haman, who wants to destroy the Jews, and then the reverse occurs. And now the Jews are the ones who are destroying their enemies. That's the thing that's going to happen over and over and over in the book. Then the reverse happened. Perhaps the emphasis is on the way God's providence upends the normal course of human events. As humans, thinking about things in a very physical way, thinking about things in a worldly way, we expect things to go a certain way. So often in the history of God's people, he subverts those expectations, he turns the story around, and instead of the, the destruction that was going to happen, instead of the horrible thing that was going to come upon the people of God, the reverse occurred. Why? Not because the people of God were so great, but because God was so great and his providence upended what people would expect. I'm reminded of the words in uh, the first Corinthian letter, right? About God putting to shame the wisdom of the, the people of this earth, right? He, he makes them weak. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. We have things that we think are going to happen, but so often God turns those around. It's a common theme of God's providence throughout human history, especially in some of the more pivotal Bible stories, right? Where the plans of people fail in the face of God's plan. We think about David and Goliath. Goliath standing up there and the people of Israel, they're too afraid. Why are they so afraid? He's a giant. He's going to kill us. Nobody wants to go out there to face him. And he goes out there. David goes out there. Because why? Because I'm on God's side. Why would I be afraid of this giant? And everybody's around there and Goliath is thinking, I'm going to smash this little kid. And everybody around is thinking, oh man, that guy's so doomed. And then the reverse occurred. And David is triumphant. We can think about many instances in the life of Moses. We can think about Pharaoh chasing after them through the Red Sea. I'm going to catch them. I'm going to get them. We will defeat the Israelites. And then the reverse occurred. We can think about the burning bush. Moses, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do this. And then the reverse occurred. Where God used Moses, so inept, to accomplish this great thing. We can think about Saul's desire to destroy the church. He originally, of course, trained as a Pharisee. The church is beginning to grow and thrive. And Saul, he's like, I'm going to go and get them. I hate these, these Christians. We're going to persecute them. We're going to put them to death. We're going to go chase them. And then the reverse occurred. Rather than being an enemy of the church, he's turned around into one of its great champions. Because that's what God does. He takes what we expect, what the world expects, and he turns it around. Because of his power and his might. Ultimately this culminates in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? When Jesus is crucified. And I'm sure Satan is thinking, man, I did it. Hooray for me. I have won. And then the reverse occurred. He's raised triumphant. Putting to death the power of death. 
But you can think about this in the life of Paul, ultimately in the life of each one of us. That's what we're looking for in our lives. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. What does Paul say? I'm the chief sinner. Foremost among sinners... And I should have died, but then the reverse occurred, and I was saved. I was brought into salvation. Grace was given to me, of course, to show that for all of us. We all deserve death. We all deserve to be lost. We all deserve judgment and destruction. And hallelujah, the reverse occurred. I have grace and forgiveness. So... While the specifics differ greatly, and we're going to see this as we go through the story of Esther and Mordecai, the plight of the Jews, a common theme in the Bible. Another common theme, and this will be the last one we talk about as we talk about the introduction to Esther. While the specifics will differ from Esther and Mordecai, we see a general thing in verses like 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then the reverse occurred, right? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Every Christian can find some commonality with Esther and Mordecai because like Esther and Mordecai, we are in exile. I don't know, ultimately, we'll never really know until heaven, why people like Esther and Mordecai didn't go back. I don't know. They're stuck in Susa. Some of the Jews got to go back. They're stuck there. We are stuck here. Strangers and exiles. And the challenge is to what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. To keep our conduct among those who are not God's people honorable. So that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I said, we're probably going to finish out the year of Sunday evenings with this. And it should be fairly easy, I hope. To read ahead for the next week's sermon. We're just going to go in order. Next week, Esther 1. You can read that ahead of time to prepare. Might I suggest, this would be a great study to do with your children. Now, some of the things about the murder and stuff, probably not great to talk about with your kids. I don't know. Gideon and Gwen, all the, actually, uh, all the kids in Kingdom Kids, uh, they were so excited because they learned about John the Baptist being beheaded this morning. What are you going to do? It is an exciting story, I guess. But this would be a good story to go through with your kids. The book of Esther. We don't celebrate Purim, but we do commemorate the reverse occurring over and over and over in our lives, right? That's what we do every week in the communion. Going through the book of Esther, I think as we go through this, it'd be good to do that with your children. Maybe if you don't have kids, that's fine. Go through with your, your spouse or with friends. Study along as we dig into this book together. The main emphasis will be this. How can we emulate Esther and Mordecai? Wherever we are, who knows whether God has put you in your situation 
for such a time as this. Whatever that's going to be, right? We're, we're followers of God surrounded by those who don't follow God. We're not really in danger like they were, not physical. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, probably not. But social or cultural danger, right? There's some, some danger here. What has God put us here to do? Let me say it this way. What has God put you here to do? 